Hey everyone, so glad we can be together tonight. I think we're going to have a, uh, a really great time together. This whole summer seminar um, series has all been about relationships. And what we've wanted to do is to kind of dive a little bit deeper than we normally have when we do marriage seminars or parenting seminars or dating seminars and kind of give almost a, a philosophy of relationship using God's word and looking at what God says about what healthy relationships are, and then taking that kind of uh, theology or philosophy of it and then applying it to different kinds of relationships. And so we've already looked at our relationship with the church. We've looked at um, our relationship with being single and how to relate to those around us. And today we're going to be looking at marriage. Now, as, as has been true in the last number of weeks, we're going to talk a little bit about marriage, but we're going to try to give it a context that we haven't really explored in previous seminars, and I think that you're going to find it really helpful, but it is going to be a little bit different than kind of your standard marriage talk, just like last time was different than your standard uh, dating or single talk. So I hope it's going to be helpful for you. Um, so if you have those notes, that's going to be really, really helpful. By the way, Pastor Matt, I, I think of the Princess Bride. Uh, back when that came out, I did a wedding and I had to dress up like the guy who said marriage. And then I had to say marriage and have you the wings and I had to do all this. And I was dressed up in that kind of Pope kind of hat and the, the whole thing. And uh, somebody took a picture of Debbie and I walking into the... Uh, uh, into the place where the wedding was, and she was uh, probably eight months pregnant. <laughs> so you have me looking very Pope-like, walking <laughs> with a very pregnant woman. Um, people thought that was very funny. It was before the days of Facebook, so it didn't get out too far, but I'm sure today it would get out much farther. So anyways, I would, you just reminded me of that. Uh, let's look at the notes. We're going to have a quote that's going to kind of set things up. It's a little bit, uh, well, it's quite focused on marriage, but then we're going to widen it out after that in just a minute. But uh, if you are able to download those notes, you're going to find that very helpful. So here's what a woman named uh, Sue Johnson said in uh, Creative for Connection, I believe is the name of the book. It says, forget about, so she's talking about marriage here, and, sure, and she is obviously an expert on this has done years of working with couples in therapy. And here's what she says about marriage. I just think this is absolutely fascinating. It says, forget about learning how to argue better, communication techniques. That's kind of marriage, you know, counseling 101. Forget about uh, learning how to argue better, analyzing your early childhood, making grand romantic gestures, or experimenting with new sexual positions. Instead, Recognize and admit that you are emotionally attached to and dependent on your partner. So what is she saying in this? That the focus of marriage, and of course we would say much wider than this, but for sure the focus on marriage is to have a healthy connection. And if you can be emotionally connected, relationally connected, the kind of uh, therapy that she does, she's coined a phrase called emotionally focused therapy, and uh, compared to, if you guys, any of you in the counseling world, compared to CBT, this has been a much more powerful tool. And the, uh, the rate of people 
kind of getting into healthier relationships, marriages is, is really incredible. And her whole focus is that admit that you're emotionally connected and so then work on um, fostering that instead of just having techniques and, and other things to distract you. The main thing going on is you're emotionally connected. That causes reactivity. If we can work through the reactivity and truly engage, you have yourself a great marriage. So uh, what does that great marriage always look like? Well, back to your notes. God made us to freely receive and give his love. This is the, the big definition that we've been working with, that a healthy marriage, a healthy person can freely receive and freely give love. This is Matthew 10, 8. It's an expression of Matthew 22, 37 to 40, which is the, the sum of the laws to love God and others. What that love relationship looks like is freely giving and receiving love. So this is what a healthy person is like. I can't think of a better definition to describe spiritual, emotional, relational health than being able to be uh, grateful in how you receive and generous in how you give. So this has been what we've kind of keep coming back to. Now, what undermines that? Well, we have here what we're calling the fear cycle. And this is based on, on uh, Genesis chapter 3. And here's how, if you uh, want an unhealthy relationship, this is how you do it. You begin, which is what we found in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, you begin with mistrusting God. This is my uh, symbol for God. So you begin with mistrusting God. What did the serpent say to Eve? Did God really say? He casts a shadow over God's motives and heart. So as you mistrust God, you now are feeling vulnerable because you're not inside of his safety. And so the next thing that happens out of the, after we mistrust God is we fear hurt. And when it comes to marriage, we feel as though our spouse is unsafe. So, you know, when you're dating and whatever, your uh, future spouse feels totally safe, trustworthy. Well, over months and years, there's hurt accumulates. And so we begin to create judgments about our spouse where we're afraid of being hurt by them. And so out of that fear of hurt, uh, then we self-protect. So this is when they, uh, so now this fearing hurt is now they decide what's right and wrong, all in a self-serving kind of way. And then they, uh, they self-protect. And so this is when they hide in the garden. So since our spouse is dangerous, or this could be a friend, we could even treat God this way, really. But this is how uh, fear uh, creates emotional disconnection. Then, whoops, self-protect. We need to, we self-protect. So we hide. <clears throat> and then as we self-protect, we, uh, we then, out of that self-protection, we end up sinning. And what we've said in previous weeks is what that sin looks like is moving in one of two directions where we either enmesh and try to control people or we disengage and are passive and are thoroughly disconnected. And so that's uh, what sin looks like. And we move between those two things, which we'll, we'll write that up in a minute. But look at how this, this is all, all begins with mistrusting God. 
And as we don't feel safe in him, we don't feel secure, significant, we're not defined by who he is, then uh, other people become more and more dangerous. And because we're not confident inside, so the potential for us getting hurt dramatically increases. Because we feel fragile, anxious, we then uh, see other people as being even perhaps more dangerous than they really are. And then out of feeling anxious and afraid, we then move into a place of self-protection, either again through control or through disengagement, and that leads us to then sin, to do things that hurt the other person. Remember, our definition of sin is whatever breaks right relationship with God and others. And so we end up choosing behaviors out of our self-protection that causes division. So this is, the, uh, this is the, the fear cycle that we get caught in. So we're going to pick up right here, but I want to draw it up top because we're going to, it'll help us later. So what does that sin look like? It looks like on the one side we enmesh, and on the other side we disengage. And so we swing back and forth between these two, but what we often find in a, uh, in a friendship or in a marriage is that one person will get more stuck on one side and the other person will get more stuck on the other side because these things are actually in tension with one another. And so the harder that somebody pushes to be what they would call connected, uh, then the more threatened this person feels. And the more that this person starts to distance, the more threatened this person feels. And so the, uh, the, the relationship itself actually causes tension between the two people. So if you look back to your notes, this is a diagram that we had in the very first week. We see enmeshment on one side. The, the, the gold standard is that differentiated unity where we freely give and receive love, but we kind of swing back and forth between these two things. This, by the way, would be more religious. This would be more rebellious if we look at the pendulum swing that we talked about in Transformations. But this is, uh, this is what we get caught up in, in relationships. Now, if you've gone for marriage counseling, or you've been taught marriage counseling, this is the, this is the classic problem. Uh, about 90% of men are on this side. About 90% of women are on this side. So that's the, that's the typical way that this tension looks like, where uh, the wife is going to be pushing for closeness and connection. The man is going to be pushing for distance and more disengagement. And this is the tension that marriages find themselves inside. So, remember how we then went on to say in that first, uh, second week actually, that this is, the, this is the tension that we have inside of nearly all human relationships. You think of a, uh, of a needy friend, and then when you, your friend is needy, what do you want to do? You want to disengage. Or you have somebody that you really like and they seem kind of distant. So what do you want to do? Well, you're trying to figure out how to get closer to them. And so there's this kind of, uh, it's almost like a, a sliding scale back and forth between these two extremes that is called the dance of relationship. And we're constantly moving back and forth on this scale, not wanting to be overwhelmed by somebody, but also not wanting to be disengaged. Wanting to stay in the middle of freely giving and receiving love. But this is very difficult to do 
And so we keep swinging back and forth between these two extremes. Now, what we talked about last week is that in the tension of this, we do this thing called triangling. And so uh, we talked about just like how riding a bike only has two wheels is unstable, that a tricycle has three wheels, which makes it more stable. In the instability of a typical relationship, we look for support. And that support is found in the third leg of the triangle. So what we do, if you look at your notes, in anxiety, because this is all based on anxiety, fear and control, uh, wanting to withdraw, and uh, it's another form of control actually, but it's the control of withdrawal as opposed to trying to uh, consume somebody. We look for support. Now, what's interesting when we think of this idea of triangles where we look for support is that uh, it's not just other people that we could look to to support us. We could also look to things. And we'll talk about this in just a minute. Feelings. We can actually triangle with the feeling. We can triangle with the past. Where uh, when you're having a conversation, I don't know if I, I've done a, a fair amount of, of marriage counseling, and uh, you look at a couple arguing, and they don't even finish their, finish their sentences. Because they've gone through this so many times, there's such a history, that it's almost like there's a third person in the room called their past. And so they'll be talking with one another, and the, somebody will say, well, uh, you know, I disagree. And then the other person will say, don't go there. And they haven't even said anything yet. Well, I can if I want to, because you know what happened back in 19, you know, uh, 92. Oh, you would have to bring that up. And so they're actually triangling with a past experience and they're trying to get support for their side of the argument using the past. So a triangle doesn't just have to be with a person. It can be with a thing, with a thought, a feeling, a past experience. It's just a way that we use to promote our side of the argument. So to reinforce somebody who's wanting deeper and richer connection, and uh, there's always a little bit of control in that, what they'll do is to reinforce their desire for this, they'll triangle. That's a little symbol for triangle. They'll triangle with allies. Now, who an ally can be, it can be a best friend, where you go off and you talk to your best friend and you say, you know, I can't believe my husband, I'm trying to connect, I'm trying to have a meaningful relationship, but all he does is just dismiss me and doesn't ask me questions or care about me or hold me. And then the ally goes, oh, that's just horrible. I can't believe that you're even in the marriage. How are you surviving? And so then the enmeshed person feels supported in their desires through having a friend. This ally can also be, and it gets really destructive, when it's a child, when it's one of the, uh, the children of the parents, and they'll, they'll sit down with the child and they'll say, you know, um, uh, you know, your, uh, you, you know your dad just, uh, you know, he's really grown distant over the years and I'm really finding it hard to know how to connect with him and we'll actually use our children to support our side. Really, really unhelpful. But we can also, uh, another thing that we can triangle with is overfunctioning. So I don't know if you've ever seen um, 
that old video game Pac-Man. But in Pac-Man, you have this little, you know, Pac-Man that's chasing. And then what are you trying to do? You're trying to get away as fast as you can from being consumed. And so this would be the classic um, mother figure. But uh, the triangle here is certain behaviors that are kind of chasing after the other person and compensating for the disengagement and making excuses or, or trying very hard to just be perfect or whatever it is, but it's a whole bunch of behaviors that are compensating for this person's disengagement and for this person's desire for connection. And so uh, you'll find some people feel like the reason why they're not experiencing the love and connection they want is because they're not working hard enough in their relationship. And so they just work harder and harder to try to get this person to come close. But just like a Pac-Man, the harder that they work, triangle with over-functioning, actually the more this person becomes disengaged. The final one, there, there could be a, a, a never-ending list, I'm just giving a few examples for you, would be guilt. So what we have in this one, what this person will triangle with, is they will use guilt to manipulate this person to come close. Look at all that I've done for you. Look at how I've cared for you. Uh, you know, I've been so faithful to you all this time. I can't believe that you would treat me this way. And so they're triangling with a feeling to increase their argument and support so that this person will come over to their side. Now, when we look at this person, they could have these same things, but we're just trying to widen the idea just to get your mind thinking about how we can, uh, about how this works. What can happen over on this side, the way that a person would disengage is they would, uh, they would triangle with a hobby. And the, so they would have the, this, you know, them, their spouse, and then the hobby. And they just use the hobby to disengage even further from the person who wants to connect. Perhaps the most common one of all would be work. Where we triangle with work, you'll see lots of men, and it doesn't just have to be men, but it's often true. You'll see lots of men just become workaholics. They hide themselves in their work, uh, defend it by, uh, you know, I'm making money for the family, I have to be responsible. But really, they're using work as a way to stay disengaged from emotionally connecting with their spouse. Another thing that they'll do, a uh, person on this side, is blame. So they'll use past experiences to defend their reason for disengaging. Remember that time when you hurt me? Remember that time when uh, you said you were going to do something and you didn't? How can I trust you? And so they'll triangle with a past experience to justify staying disengaged. And finally, it would be good works. This is what we would call the dutiful husband. The husband who does everything that the wife is asking for, is just being good, uh, playing with the kids, cooking supper, um, you know, doing a whole bunch of good works, but really, in their heart, they're thoroughly disengaged. But they feel like it's okay to be emotionally disengaged. They justify it by saying, look at all the wonderful things that I do for you.
and they actually hide behind good works to justify staying emotionally disengaged because at least it's something. But being dutiful is not the same as being emotionally connected. Now here's what's interesting then about this, is that if you were to go for counseling, these things would be talked about. First of all, it would be identified whether you're on more of the enmeshed side or the disengaged side. Then you would look at the ways that you garner support for your point of view, and you'd work through how all of these are actually uh, dodges for not really looking at the anxiety in your own heart and either wanting to control or withdraw from your spouse. What has been proven to be true is that we can actually improve our triangles. And instead of having allies that support our control, we find a better group of friends or perhaps a counselor who will be a little bit more honest with us and actually help us change and not just stay stuck. We can, instead of blaming, we can, uh, we can take responsibility. And so it's possible to actually do better at this. We were, um, a few nights ago, we watched this movie. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's uh, Goodwill Hunting. And um, watch it again. I really, I mean, if you, if you don't like uh, foul language, do not watch the movie. There's more F-bombs, I think, in that movie than I care to listen to. But the, the story is, is really outstanding. It's really well acted. And, uh, you know, there's this guy who's a genius, but he's from a really, really troubled background. And so he meets with Robin Williams, who's a therapist, who works through his emotional dysfunction to become a healthier person. Um, <clears throat> this is where it just, I mean, it, this is where it gets difficult. So my experience in, in Christian counseling, uh, I've done it, I've taught it, that you, you barely need God, except maybe as a resource, you pray at the beginning or the end. But really, it's just working through your control issues or your anxiety and with, withdrawal issues and learning how to risk emotional engagement, learning how to risk not being in control. You can just work that through. And if you look at the fear cycle, the mistrusting God, fearing hurt, self-protecting and sinning, uh, you can kind of forget the first one, mistrusting God, and just work on learning how to feel safe and then not self-protecting and not churning to sinful behavior, but more constructive behavior. And so it's possible to have a better marriage, to have a better friendship, just by learning uh, very um, helpful principles of how communication works, how vulnerability works, how to find a place where you feel secure in the midst of, of, uh, of being known and uh, super helpful. But I went through uh, Ephesians just as an example of how the Bible talks about relationships. More uh, specifically, the triangle that pretty much every relationship in Ephesians, and you could find it beyond Ephesians, but it was, it was just the most stark in Ephesians, of how the Bible offers a different solution through offering a new triangle. 
in this triangle is with Jesus. That instead of just kind of getting rid of these negative ones and looking for more positive ways to take personal responsibility for your own part, what the Bible consistently does is say, uh, put Jesus in the center of your life and of all of your relationships. Look in your notes of the Bible verses that we've put there that describe different relationships and how each and every one of them has Christ in the middle. Looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Well, that just sounds like good advice, doesn't it? And if you're teaching on these things, and if you're teaching about healthy relationships, usually you just stop there, or you mumble the last part of the verse. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. It's just kind of an example. Um, but uh, this verse is actually putting the weight on being in Christ uh, through the forgiveness of sins, and that is, as that's true, you can then be kind and compassionate. It makes Christ the center and not some good behavior that you should engage in with other people. In Ephesians 5.21, it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So submit to one another. Why? Well, for Christ's sake. And not for the sake of the relationship. Not that you think that this is going to be the best way to get out of this unhealthy uh, style of relating, this fear cycle. Uh, the emphasis is not on submitting to one another. It's the, the, the emphasis is on out of reverence for Christ. And if you revere Christ, what that would look like is submitting to other kinds of people. And then it goes on to give a bunch of examples of what that submission should look like. And look how each one of these is described. You guys, this is such a big deal, and we don't talk about it much. Wives, this is uh, 522. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. So what is the foundation of a wife? By the way, the word uh, submission simply means to receive, to surrender or yield. It's uh, let someone love you. But what is the foundation of this act of submission and surrender and reception? Uh, as you do to the Lord. The prerequisite to that kind of behavior is the practice of yielding to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the weight of it. And what we typically do, if you're uh, in a church that, that teaches about wives submitting, what do we do? We say, wives submit. But we barely say the second half of the verse which is the precondition for the first half of the verse. And then, perhaps even more importantly, is verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. So, yeah, they're to receive, but you're to give. And the way that you give is as Christ has given to you. Now, if you have not received from Christ, if you do not know uh, uh, who you are in Him, and you have your identity in Him, and received the sacrificial love, surrender to his sacrificial love, there's no way that you're going to be able to love your wife in that way. It's actually all about the Lord and then 
the manifestation of our relationship with the Lord is laying down our life for other people, particularly our wives. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Children, obey your parents. Now, that is just every time I've heard that, there's been a period after that. Children, obey your parents. Any questions? Good. No, I don't want any questions. Just obey, because I said so. Obey your parents in the Lord. A child's responsibility to obedience to the parents is about somehow being in Christ and reflecting your devotion to Christ in how you would relate to your parents. This is just, uh, this is revolutionary. So if you have kids who are disobeying, what's the first thing that you work on? In the Lord. If you struggle with sacrificially laying down your life for your spouse, what's the first thing that you do? Is you turn to Christ, receive how he has unconditionally loved you, and then out of that place of security, now love others. If you struggle with submission and surrender, what's the first thing that needs to happen? Not working on uh, telling the other person, well, I would surrender to you, I would submit to you, but you're so flawed. And so what you need to do is you need to work on being a better person, and then I might get around to surrendering to you someday. What this is saying is, no, it's about the Lord. It's about your relationship with Christ. And as that's true, then what will naturally come out of you is a freedom to not control a relationship, but actually to surrender inside of that relationship. This is radical stuff. Fathers, bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. In that training, this is not some cerebral exercise. How has Christ trained us? In relationship with us, in walking with us through life's ups and downs. And it's of the Lord. It's all about God. It isn't about some clever wisdom that you want your kids to know in order to be, uh, you know, more well-adjusted or get a better education or get a better job. It's all about the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters just as you would obey Christ. As you obey Christ, wow! As you obey Christ, obey human beings. Wow! There's no way that you can do that without a meaningful relationship with Jesus. It's impossible. And then as a summary, really, uh, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord not people. So just, you know, put, put, you know, replace the word people with the name of your spouse or the name of your best friend, your D group leader or a member of your D group. Uh, serve them wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. Uh, this, I think, would take care of like every relational problem <laughs> right there. Jesus is perfect, died for our sins, gave us new life, new hearts, empowered us by his grace. And so uh, serve people as if you're serving God, not them. So you would never have to, from this day forward, judge them that they're not worthy to be served, not worthy to be vulnerable with, because all you're doing is treating them the way that you've already worked through your relationship with God. This is a triangle that almost never gets talked about, for sure not in popular books. 
people just want tips and tricks. And this is just a brand new way of relating. And finally, just to complete what's talked about in Ephesians, in chapter 6, verse 9, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. So the same way as being uh, serving the Lord, not people. So masters, treat your slaves as being Jesus, is what is being said. Remembering that he who is uh, their master is also yours. So you'll be under the same judgment. You're no better or worse. So have humility and treat them as you would Christ. Well, that would transform any business, wouldn't it? That would transform any work environment. So here's the point. We live for, like, in, and through Jesus. The, 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 the Christian message is not, would you like to have uh, a better job? Would you like to live in a better house? And would you like to get along with your, your spouse better and, and, and have wonderful kids that you can brag about? Then just follow the principles in this Bible and then pray and God's going to be the best resource for you to live the life that you've always wanted. Now, I think it's true that we do end up living the life that we've always wanted, but it's not because God was simply a resource for our agenda. It's because we put him first in our hearts. We set him apart, as Colossians 2, 6 and 7 says, set apart Christ as Lord. And if Christ was Lord, then all of the relationships under him would all sort themselves out. What if the reason why we struggle in marriage, we struggle in friendship, we struggle in parenting, working at work, is really those are just moments that reveal the challenges in our heart in our relationship with God, our unsurrendered hearts to Him. I find it much simpler to just blame my spouse, blame my kids, blame my friend, blame my boss, or just try to work on being better and working through kind of points two to four of the fear cycle and forgetting the, the first one, which is about mistrusting God. And just working on being more vulnerable and communicative and sharing my feelings and, and uh, learning how to listen better and just accumulating a bunch of techniques. What if all of these techniques are really compensating for a lack of lordship in my own heart and life? My friends, okay, when I was praying about this talk, there was a verse that came to my mind about you. And I don't know, all of you who are watching this, whether you're, you're in our church or not, I don't know. But as I was praying for us tonight, uh, 2 Corinthians 11.2 um, came into my mind, and it's this. And this is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church from the depths of his heart. Here's what he says. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I may present you as a pure virgin to him. 
What is, what is the ultimate marriage? It is not to your spouse. It is to Christ. And what your human marriage is to do, what your friendships are to do, what your D groups are to do, the way that you work through um, your relationships at work, what, the, what all of our relationships are doing is revealing the reality of where we're really at with Jesus and our pure devotion to him. And I am, uh, I don't know how to say this in a way that, that you could hear, but I feel jealous that I uh, promised you to one husband, to Christ. I want to help you with your marriages. I want to see your kids thrive. I want to see you have the job that you've always dreamed of. But at the end of the day, what I care about more than anything is your relationship with Jesus Christ and whether you treat him as such a beautiful husband that you've saved yourself for him in a pure and undefiled virgin in anticipation of being wed to him. And what we've done is we've churned it all upside down. And God is the resource to do the real thing, which is to have the great marriage and the great kids and the great job and the great friends. And scripture does the opposite of that. It says, set apart Christ as Lord. Be devoted to him. He is your husband. You are the bride. Purify your hearts and your lives. And what you've done to the least of these, you've done to your groom. And live with him as the priority. And when that is solid and true and sure, then you will have the marriage and the kids and the job and all that will be great. It really will be. But it will be so because it's in the right order with Christ being first as the head of your heart, as, as we say, as your life leader. And so uh, I don't feel right talking about marriage without making this as the main point. This is exactly what we see in Ephesians chapter 5. We see Paul can hardly focus on talking about how husbands and wives should relate. He keeps going back to how Christ relates to us as the church and how that's what's really going on. And he goes, oh yeah, sorry, I got, you know, but wives respect your husbands, husbands love your wives. He can't, he can't pull those apart because he knows that what's ultimately going on is Jesus is the bridegroom and he has purified for himself a bride, otherwise known as you and I, the church. And in our pursuit of that, we work out our marriages. We work out our friendships. Do you see the difference? This is profound. I think of, of so many times um, when Debbie and I have had some kind of struggle. And uh, it's often her, sometimes it's me. And what we'll say, we'll be in the middle of an argument and we'll just come to our senses. And we'll go, this is dumb. And we'll remember Jesus in a moment. And as soon as we remember Jesus and that we're accountable to him and that he has purchased us 
out of this world to be his. And as soon as we fall in love with him and our affection is towards him, then all the petty hurts and annoyances or insults all fade away because we've seen him. And then our marriage thrives because Jesus has been put in the rightful place in our hearts. This is a different kind of triangle. It's not tweaking or improving the old triangle. It's dismantling the old triangle and putting Jesus Christ as Lord of our hearts and our lives. So we live for Jesus. We don't, follow me now, we don't live for our spouse. We don't live for our friends. We're not people pleasers. We live for Jesus. And we live to be like Jesus. Because he is the most beautiful of, uh, of all that you could imagine. We live, we, live, we, we live to be like him, to bear his image. And then perhaps the most profound that I have meditated on more than anything else, especially in this last year, is we live in Jesus. We participate in the relationship that he has with the Father because we are in Christ. We're not a religion. We're not trying to get to God. God came to us. And through his work on the cross, we are in Christ, one with him, safe in the very essence of the Godhead through the work of Jesus Christ. The safest place on earth is where you and I reside, in Christ. And we live out of the position of our identity and very being in him. And then from that, we live through him to the people around us. Would this not transform every relationship? Is this not the primary problem in your heart and in mine? It's not that I'm working through how to forgive others or how to be nicer. It's I'm working through my, uh, my union with Christ and being defined by him and submitting to him. And then only uh, uh, as I'm submitting to him do I now submit to others. Do I now lay down my life for others? It's always about him. Worship then purifies our other relationships. Our worship of Jesus purifies our other relationship. Take a look at the triangle that's in your notes. You'll see as we worship God, then we're free to gratefully receive and generously give. Now, don't get me wrong. You can, you can, uh, you can just work on being a more grateful and generous person without Jesus. There's thousands, perhaps millions of people in the world who are trying to be better people. And many of them are actually succeeding. But this is what I feel about you. I don't want you to simply succeed at this life and go to hell. I feel jealous because I have promised you to one groom, Jesus Christ. And... Uh, there's lots of ways to have good marriages and positive friendships and get ahead at work. There's lots of ways. And they might even work. I'm not interested in whether it works or not. I'm interested in the priority of Christ in our lives. And marriage, perhaps, is the greatest idol. I mean, maybe next to work and fame or something. But 
I think marriage, it's the first, it's the first idol recorded in the Bible, and I don't think anything has changed. And so we use Jesus as a resource to have the marriage that we've always wanted. But what if we have the relationship with God that we always wanted and we use marriage for that? For sure our marriage would get blessed. For sure we would be the spouse that we've always wanted to be. And for sure we could help them become all that they wanted to be. But it's because we got the order of relationships right. The Lordship of Christ first. Being being one with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Can you imagine that? Oh, that we could get in touch with this. And that worship, that devotion to Christ, would gratitude would just flow out of our lives. And any time our wife or husband would do something even a little bit, we would just be overwhelmed just because our heart has been already filled with gratitude. And this is just another way that God is... is is using someone else to be a channel of his love in our lives. And then we would want to be generous because so much has been given to us. Oh my goodness, we're just so full. We just want to give it away. And we wouldn't be stingy. We wouldn't be disengaged. We'd be fully emotionally present because we're safe in Christ. So, in faith, we triangle with Christ. And instead of... uh, Instead of these things, in him, as we triangle with him, we can be submissive with great joy. We can actually surrender and give up control. We don't have to be in control because we know Jesus is control and he's a lover of our souls. We can also be free. We don't have to manipulate. We don't have to uh, get somebody to love us. We're not defined by them. We're defined by Christ. We're free. And we've already said we can be grateful. We've already talked about that. On the other side, we can be vulnerable. All being disengaged is, is a form of self-protection. But when we're safe in Christ and in his love and power, we can be thoroughly vulnerable, emotionally engaged, fully present. Not just, you know, gritting and bearing it, but we can be thoroughly vulnerable. We can be proactive, not passive. We can initiate relationship. Instead of them being the Pac-Man, we can be the Pac-Man. We can pursue relationship because we're free. We don't have to self-protect anymore. And finally, we can be generous. We're not stingy. We give fully and joyfully because of all that's ours in Christ. Why don't we, why don't we experience this? Why isn't this our reality? I, I'm sure it is at some level, but I think we're all moving towards this. What's difficult? The trouble is, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, it says that our consciences can be seared. One of the things that I am most afraid of, and I've talked to, I, I, when I talk to people, uh, I, this is the thing that terrifies me more than anything else, is that we can actually have a conscience that's seared, that's hardened, dull, stone-like, towards God. Um, 
I think about this in terms of my relationship with Debbie. And, uh, you know, we're going to be married 35 years in just a, in a month's time. So that's a long time. And when I see pain on my wife's face, it could be something that I've done, or it just could be something that someone else has done. But it's particularly if I've done something that's been unkind or unloving, hurtful. But even if it's something else, if I see pain on her, right here, I get a knot in my stomach. I just, my stomach just twists and uh, I can't be doing okay because she's not doing okay. In my relationship with Debbie, I don't have a seared conscience. I can't just look at Debbie and go, ah, whatever. She's clearly got a few issues. She should work that out. That my conscience is not seared. When she's in pain, I can't be doing fine. I can't be. Maybe I'm more enmeshed than I think I am. But we're one. We're one flesh. And if she's not doing fine, I'm not doing fine. What if what my relationship with Debbie is to teach me is how not to have a seared conscience toward Jesus. What if that example that happens in my stomach around my wife is my father saying, this is how I want you to treat my son and feel about my son. You're to be a virgin, wholly devoted to him. And it should break your heart that you would ever do anything to dishonor him discredit him, embarrass him, hurt him, shame him. And your stomach should twist inside at the thought of hurting your husband, Jesus. And I pray and I say, God, I barely know what that means. Teach me. You gave me human relationships to awaken me to this. And now I need you to help me have that kind of soft heart and conscience toward God. I'm quite convinced that the number one problem of why people do not come to know the Lord Jesus Christ is very, very simple. Hard heart. If we even caught a glimpse of how we've dishonored the name of God, we would repent in dust and ashes. But we've, we've, we've so hardened our hearts that we mostly think about how upset we are with God for not giving us even more. This is how far I think we've fallen. God is more than a resource. He is the focus of our faith. It's in him that we trust. He's the focus of our hope. Our hope isn't in our spouse or our friends or our church. Our, folk, our, our hope is in him. And our love is in him. He is the one who satisfies the longings, the deepest longings of our heart. It's him. And if you try to find that in another human, you will end up controlling them. You will end up being enmeshed. Demanding that they be something that only God can be. 
But this is the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel is that Jesus is buried in human relationships. And it's not, uh, I have here, uh, our relationship with Jesus is not an enmeshed relationship. Here's the, here's the beauty of Jesus. Is yes, he wants single-minded, pure devotion to him. But what we know in, um, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, is that he actually uh, wants us to, to be connected and not to be alone. To be, to be connected with other humans. And so um, he's not jealous in that sense, that he actually wants us to enjoy relationships with one another. And so, but what we discover is that he wants us to find him in those human relationships, not just as a resource, not as a sideshow. We want us even in human relationships to discover the reality of Jesus. And when marriage is working properly, this is exactly what marriage does. It leads us to worship. It leads us to knowing God. It leads us to humility. What happens then is that uh, people become channels of God's love towards us and we, are, uh, and we are able to then love others generously. So let's just summarize then. As Jesus would have that rightful place in his heart, let's look at a new cycle. that isn't about fear, it's now about faith. Faith in Jesus, not faith in our spouse, not faith in ourselves. And just take a look in your notes. We'll just wrap it up with this. As we receive security by faith, as we know that we're loved and forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ, eternally secure, known by him, known fully in all of our ugliness and in all of our beauty, and accepted in that place, chosen to be married to the great bridegroom. As we receive that security, we no longer fear loneliness. We no longer have to control. And so now we're able to give respect, you'll see in point two. We're able to give respect gratefully. We're able to be grateful for who our spouse is, not simply what they're not. We now don't focus on being critical. We become grateful. And then, uh, number three, and this could also be number one because they both go first. But as we receive our significance by faith, as we know that we have been chosen by God, and now we have a life purpose that's about glorifying his name, about living under him, through him, in him, and by him. And we know that we've been given grace in order to do what God's given us to do. We are secure in our calling. We're not driven about by other people's opinions of us. We actually choose to do what's best for everybody because we're secure in Christ. Instead of fearing failure, we now engage emotionally. We're no longer disengaged. We give love generously, emotionally, with our whole heart, not holding anything back, not being stingy and self-protected, but fully giving ourselves instead of being disengaged and self-protected. That allows we become a channel for the other person to feel even more secure, which helps them to be even more respectful and grateful, which allows us to be even more significant, which allows us to give love even more generously. And this becomes the cycle of faith of a marriage that has been baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what God invites us into and as we have marriages that put Jesus as the center, not only is that marriage blessed, not only are the children blessed, but that marriage becomes a living witness 
to the glory of God to the world around them. And this becomes our greatest privilege. So, a lot of words. That's a lot of talking. But I'd love to hear if you have any questions or comments. If there's, uh, you can just uh, uh, put a note to Tara or put it in the chat. I'd love to hear any comments that you have. You can simply even affirm what, how you've experienced this to be true in, in your marriage or in your friendships. Or uh, you can ask some questions for clarification or something that just doesn't make sense and you're worried that maybe I'm being biased in some way. Well, I'd really love you to help me and uh, we can maybe get a, a bit closer to the truth if you uh, give me some input. So feel free to uh, ask some questions. We'd love to talk a little bit about that. Thank you so much, Pastor Greg. That was really helpful, although a few times I'm pretty sure you were uh, referencing me in my own marriage. So <laughs> <laughs> As I'm sure we all felt. <laughs> um, first of all, one of the questions is, um, if someone's in a dating or an engaged relationship and they start to see the enmeshed and disengaged cycle taking place, would you say that this is a red flag for an unhealthy relationship that could lead to an unhealthy marriage? Or is this a cycle that's going to exist most relationships and we can still use the same tools to sort of fix them. What an outstanding question. Uh, so yes, it is a red flag and yes, it is normal. <laughs> um, everybody is working this through. Nobody, everybody wants things from other people that are unreasonable and everybody is afraid to engage in relationships. It's, it, it's just true for humanity because we still live on this side of our, of our new resurrected bodies, living in perfect union with Christ. And so we do live in the tension of that. But here's the, uh, here's the interesting thing. So yes, if you find that the person that you're dating is very controlling or doesn't know how to emotionally engage, that should be a red flag. But here's an even redder flag, that they're not self-aware and that they don't know how to go to Christ with their issues. That's the greatest danger. Everybody's working through these issues. But if we're not aware of our issues, and if we don't know how to go to Christ first, and then be able to work that out in human relationships, then that's perhaps the most dangerous of all. I've seen marriages that are, um, you know, somebody, people got married, and uh, they weren't, there weren't big signs of people being enmeshed or disengaged. They were relatively healthy people. But as they prioritized the relation of the marriage and their, um, their worship of God waned, these things started to crop up later. Because according to what we see in God's word, these are symptoms of our relationship with God, not just our relationship with other people. This is what happens when we're not securing him. And so I would really, I, I, I would, if, if you're dating, listen to how they talk about Jesus. Listen to whether they have a heart affection for him. Listen to whether they obey what he says. Whether they honor his word and live by his word, not in some legalistic way, but as a way to express their love and devotion to him. And as, as, you, as you hear that, they are safe people. They will never be perfect people. 
And then are they able to take that relationship that they have with Jesus and express it in their human relationships? Do you see kindness and compassion? Do you see humility and respect? And so you want to be able to see how whether their relationship with God kind of just stays mystical in the clouds or whether it actually or whether it translates into how they live their lives, which of course would be a genuine relationship with God. So yes, a red flag, but let it point beyond just these issues to where they stand with God and how they follow him. Yeah, I think the most um, practical example of this is in 1 Peter uh, chapter 3. It says, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so there's that unfortunate word, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So this is talking about a wife being married to somebody who's disobedient to God. And the recommendation is to, um, to live in such a way, uh, chaste and respectful behavior, that is in honor to God. Um, I think that uh, our world has told us that we can't be happy until the people around us achieve a certain level of perfection. And uh, I think it's possible to find the peace and joy of the Lord, even in a relationship with somebody who is less than ideal. Um, I've, watched, I've watched successful marriages, and one of the things that, that I think is, is uh, has been characteristic of successful marriages is I'll, I'll watch, you know, I'll get to know the marriage and I'll, I'll see them and I'm looking at the, at the behavior of either the husband or the wife, it barely matters, and I go, ouch, they're not great. And then I'll look at the spouse, look at those exact same behaviors and think it's cute. <laughs> or, or go, ah, it's how she is. I love her just the way she is or I love him just the way he is. And it feels as though they've given up demanding that their uh, spouse behave in a certain way in order for them to be doing fine. And the, here's, the, here's the grand uh, irony of that, that as we give up demanding who we think the other person should be, and we find our identity in Christ, 
what often happens, and I've seen it happen time and again, not just in my marriage, but in the marriages around me, as soon as we get our identity in Christ, give up demanding that they behave in a certain way, as we become less fearful and more faith-filled, we actually create space for them to make the changes that we always hoped they would make. And that what we did is we just worked on our part. What most people are working on in marriage is their spouse. And it's for sure the most unhealthy thing that you can do. It's a form of blame shifting. Instead, we work on ourselves. And the primary thing that we work on is our identity in Christ. And as our anxiety goes down, as our faith goes up, we then create space for them to make more positive choices and to find their identity in Christ. And so I never think it's too late to trust Jesus. After you said I do, there's, uh, I've seen lots of marriages thrive, even when somebody is disobedient, as it says in 1 Peter 3, even disobedient to the word. You can find uh, peace and joy in, uh, for sure, the other person's life. Not easy, but I don't know of any marriage that's easy. So maybe that'll get, get you going in the right direction. I can just feel, though, when I answer things like that, it feels as though I'm letting people off the hook that we should all seek to be godly. And, and I, I would, I'm afraid that if you hear me talking, I'm somehow suggesting that when people mistreat us, we should just, you know, suck it up and just be godly and not ever give them any feedback or not try to work on the relationship directly. I'm not trying to talk about that. I'm trying to talk about our priority of relationships and that the first place that we go is to our relationship with Christ and then we engage with each other. And I think we would be delightfully surprised of how effective devotion to Christ is even with people who are not following Jesus. That's right. I'll just tell you this story, and um, some of you heard it before, perhaps. But um, when I, Debbie and I were only engaged for a few months, I think it was three or four months or something like that. So, super short dating, short engagement, and we were married. Well, in those uh, number of months, I think I read 14, 13, or 14 books on marriage. And uh, I mean, it's just what I do. I'm a little bit geeky that way. And so, um, you know, I just read a whole bunch of generic books on generic marriages. And then as, uh, as we grew in our relationship, um, I, the way that I've said in the past, and I still believe it to be true, that really I wanted to study one book, and that's my wife. That, I, 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 yes, I can learn from other marriages. Yes, I can learn from books. I'm not trying to say that that's bad. 
But what I discovered was that um, other people's experiences of marriage can only take me so far. I've got to engage with my wife. And we have a relationship that isn't like anybody else's. It's our relationship. And I'm not trying to be like anybody else. I'm trying to have a relationship with my wife. I don't have relationships with generic. It's my wife. And I think this is true in our relationship with God. Like I could give the principles. You should read your Bible, pray, be still with the Father, learn how to find your identity in Him, learn how to rest in Him, hold your tongue, uh, pray in tongues, uh, fast. I mean, those, if you, anything that I would say is just generic. But I have a relationship with God that's mine. And it's personal, and I know him, and I walk with him. And I'm doing the generic things, but it's my relationship with God. And so uh, it's less about a technique and more about a decision to want that. So here's what I do. I say, Father, I am pretty sure I have a seared conscience. I get that that pain in my gut is way more when I hurt Debbie than when I hurt you, and that's not right. And so I'm asking that you would soften my heart towards you and that you would help me build a relationship with you that's, that's meaningful not just to me but to you. Could you please teach me how I could be your, your lover, how you could be my Lord, how I could walk with you? And I start building the relationship. And I, I end up reading my Bible and praying and being quiet with him. I, I go for, a, you know, this is what I do, but I go for mountain bike rides. And I, I just, I clear my head. I pray in tongues. I worship. And I just, I have a time that's just for him and I. And it's undistracted. And that's how I have my, so should all of you go mountain biking? <laughs> Tara, you should be out on those trails. Uh, you know, is that, is that what we're saying? No. It's, it's, could you have the adventure of building a personal relationship with God? Use other people as examples, for sure. But let that, let it be less about what's generic and just pray that God would soften your heart and, and, uh, you know, find out what you enjoy doing together. And, um, and you know, in, in my Bible, you'll see that it's all, it's marked up with underlining and little scribbles and other people, they journal. and uh, But whatever it is, it is. It's more important that you move towards him than that you do it in a particular way. And then you will just have the sweetness of relationship that will be yours. And uh, it will be irreplaceable in your heart. And so I just really encourage you to just move toward relationship and just see where that takes you. I'm so glad I don't have to mountain bike to do that. Yes. <laughs> I that was for you. Realize that what you're saying is true, and that's what 
what you have isn't just a religion, but an actual relationship with God, and that He does speak to you that way, and He That's right. very kindly speaks to me when I'm floating on water, and that is That's the right. beauty of our God, is that, you know, he knows us and he connects to us and that, that's helpful. The last time, Tara, yeah, Tara, the, the last time I floated on water, we were in uh, Hanama Bay in Hawaii and I was so seasick, I had to scramble out of the water <laughs> and sit under, a, sit under a palm tree and try not to throw up. So God bless you for floating <laughs> and I'll stay on my bike and we're going to have a great life. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Last question. Um, so given this, would, could you, uh, you may have already referenced it, but could you just tell us again sort of the meaning of marriage then with all of this and the purpose of submitting to one another in that? Yeah. So, uh, so the purpose of marriage is to, uh, is to have a relationship with another human being that draws you closer to Jesus, to one another, into the world. And uh, marriage will be the most intimate relationship. It will not be, it will be holy in the sense that you won't have the relationship that you have with your spouse, you won't have with any other human being. And so it becomes an incredibly powerful gift as well as a moment for you to understand it becomes kind of a, um, a reflection of what Jesus is inviting us into in our relationship with him. And so, but please, you've got to hear this. Just because I'm suggesting that a marriage has a purpose greater than itself doesn't make the marriage less meaningful, it makes it more meaningful. You've really got to hear that. I'm not saying that you should somehow be disengaged with your spouse in order to better love Jesus. That's ridiculous is that your love for Jesus will move you out of being disengaged with your spouse and out of being enmeshed. It will help you live in that, in that zone of freely giving and receiving love. So marriage and devotion to Christ are not opposed to one another. They complement one another. And this was this point saying the mystery of the gospel is that um, God is often revealed through our relationships. Think of how most people, I would say, well over, you know, 99% of people, how do you come to Christ? Through a friend, through a family member. That somehow the gospel gets transmitted through human beings into our hearts. God's very comfortable with doing that. And I think marriage is one of the most powerful ways, excuse me, that we can experience God is through the love of our spouse and through understanding how to have that intimate relationship with them. So, um, yeah, hopefully that's, uh, hopefully that's helpful.